You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 205, the Continental Congress enters 1779. Over the winter of 1778-79, the Continental Congress continued its difficult work of keeping the states united and continuing the war. Many of the leading delegates had left Congress for other duties. Benjamin Franklin and John Adams were both in France as diplomats. Caesar Rodney was now president of Delaware. Thomas Jefferson had returned to Virginia, where he was revising the state's statutes and would soon be elected governor. John Hancock returned to Congress in the summer of 1778, but after no one seemed interested in returning him to the president's chair, he left again for Boston and focused more on his business affairs. President Henry Lawrence, however, had his own issues while presiding over Congress. When he first took the chair in November 1777, he had to deal with the Conway Cabal. Congress's big accomplishment during Lawrence's presidency was the passage of the Articles of Confederation. But a year later, those articles were still going nowhere with state ratification. The other big issue on Lawrence's to-do list was utilizing the alliance with France to win the war. The French fleet had come to America a year earlier, but again had accomplished relatively little before leaving for the West Indies. The departure of some of the most important delegates, along with Congress's failure to meet the needs of the Army and its constant demands on the states, led many across the country to lose respect for Congress. Furthering the problem was an increasingly apparent divide between Southern delegates and New Englanders. There had always been some level of distrust between the regions. Early in the war, though, New England was really focused on getting the Southern states into the war so that it went out of its way to support Southern interests, and it also made sure to include many military leaders from the South in the new Continental Army. Since the war had left New England, though, New England delegates seemed to be reasserting themselves, and we see sectional interests once again growing and having an impact on many other issues. As all this was happening, another public attack on Congress came in December from General William Thompson. Now, you may recall Thompson had been one of the first officers from Pennsylvania to join the Continental Army. His regiment of riflemen arrived only a short time after General Washington took command in 1775. Washington was not a big fan of Thompson, but Congress promoted him anyway to brigadier in March 1776. When Washington moved the main army from Boston to New York, he sent General Thompson off to Quebec. Thompson managed to get captured only a couple of months after his promotion. 
the British paroled the general and allowed him to return to Pennsylvania, on the condition, of course, that he not resume any military duties until exchanged for a British general. For the next few years, Thompson sat around waiting for an exchange, and waiting and waiting. Thompson grew increasingly frustrated and angry at the delays. In September of 1778, there were negotiations to exchange Thompson for New Jersey Governor William Franklin, who had become an American prisoner in 1776. Instead of going through with that exchange, though, Congress opted to exchange Franklin for Delaware Governor John McKinley, whom the British had captured during the Philadelphia Campaign. General Thompson determined that Delaware Delegate Thomas McKean was responsible for him losing out on the exchange. Then, because the Americans were still holding on to British generals from the Saratoga campaign, the British Army revoked General Thompson's parole and ordered him to return to New York City for imprisonment. Just after Thompson received word in November that he would have to return to New York, he sought out McKean at a Philadelphia coffee house and got into a violent argument with him. Thompson called McKean a rascal and a villain, with the apparent intent of getting McKean to challenge him to a duel. It was also reported that Thompson called Congress a, quote, parcel of damned rascals, although the exact wording is in dispute. Delegate McKean refused to take the bait and instead reported the incident to Congress. McKean accused Thompson of insulting Congress. A military general attacking the honor of the civilian leaders of the government was considered a pretty serious offense. Congress held hearings in December to determine exactly what was said. Thompson denied criticizing Congress generally and insisted his remarks were against McKean in his personal capacity. In the end, Congress took no action against Thompson, but also allowed him to return to British custody and left him there for another nearly two years. The whole incident was yet another example of how tenuous Congress thought its reputation was becoming with the public. Just as the Thompson hearings were winding down, Silas Dean decided it was a good time to publish his attack on Congress. I went into detail about the Dean investigations back in episode 193. The American diplomat to France had returned to Philadelphia in June of 1778 to face investigations about his activities in bringing covert French assistance to America. Dean had been the target of secret accusations from fellow Commissioner Arthur Lee, whose two brothers, Richard Henry and Francis Lightfoot Lee, sat in Congress. The Lees did not have any solid evidence against Dean, mostly because the accusations were complete BS. So, instead, they chose to drag out the hearings for over a year without resolving anything and preventing Dean from returning to France. After about six months of this, Dean got sick of it and published an article in December 1778, which called out Congress, and the Lees in particular, for his unjust recall from France and for the inability to resolve the complaints against him. This set off a series of back-and-forth articles between Dean on the one side and the Lees, supported by Thomas Paine, on the other. Henry Lawrence had backed the Lees in this dispute. Lawrence had grown to oppose Dean and believed all the accusations that the Lees had made against him. 
Lawrence was outraged at Dean's public attack on Congress and moved that Congress form yet another committee to investigate Dean over the propriety of his publication and suspend all investigation regarding Dean's involvement in French assistance until the Committee on the Publications could issue a final report. Lawrence saw this as another way of dragging out the hearings and further punishing Dean for taking the whole affair to the public. The majority in Congress, however, rejected Lawrence's plan and refused to respond as a body to Dean's article. In what appears to have been a peak of frustration at Congress's inaction, Lawrence gave a speech saying he could no longer be president of a body that refused to defend its dignity, and he offered his resignation. It's not clear if Lawrence really meant to resign or whether he thought the delegates would reject his offer and reconsider his motion to go after Dean. If it really was the latter, he would be disappointed. Adding to Lawrence's troubles was an accusation against him that he had leaked confidential information to Thomas Paine during the public disputes with Dean. Congress called a vote for a new president the following day. At the same time, some of Lawrence's allies attempted to re-elect Lawrence, but they were in the minority. By a vote of eight states to four, Congress elected John Jay as its new president. John Jay had only arrived as a delegate to Congress a few days earlier. He was just shy of his 33rd birthday when he assumed the president's chair. The New York delegate had grown up in a wealthy and prominent family. His father had been a wealthy merchant. His mother descended from a prominent Dutch family that had lived in New York since before it became British. Jay had attended college and pursued a career as a lawyer. He began supporting the Patriot cause before the war and served on a local committee of correspondence. In 1774, he was a delegate to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia, but after that he stayed away, serving in local New York Provincial Congress and also as a judge in New York State. As I said, he joined the Second Continental Congress just a few days before Lawrence offered his resignation. Now, I'm not clear exactly why the majority of delegates turned to the new guy to become president. Part of it may have been that he was perceived as a moderate and maybe hadn't made a lot of personal enemies in Congress yet. It may have also been that he was a supporter of Silas Dean and that the majority wanted to show its support, indirectly at least, for Dean. Whatever the reasons, though, the Continental Congress now had a new president. Another issue on Congress's agenda was an all-out assault on Quebec. Now, recall that a year earlier, Congress had approved an assault on Quebec to be led by General Lafayette, but that it could not come up with the men, money, ammunition, and other resources needed to get the offensive underway. In that interceding year, France had joined the war. With the availability of French soldiers, arms, and equipment, and with the reduction of British forces as London moved soldiers to other parts of the empire, the Americans thought they probably had a better opportunity in 1779 to push Britain out of Canada. Lafayette became an ardent advocate of leading an invasion of Quebec. He pestered both Washington and Congress with proposals to lead just such an offensive. George Washington rejected the plan, 
telling Lafayette that his priorities were capturing New York and Newport. Washington also wrote to Congress, giving a litany of military reasons why an invasion of Quebec would be a bad idea in 1779, just as he thought it had been a bad idea in 1778. In addition to his more public objections, Washington also expressed private concerns to President Henry Lawrence in a November 14th letter as to why a French-led invasion of Quebec was a really bad idea. Washington looked at the outcome if the offensive succeeded. Washington noted that the local Quebecois might be very happy to be under French rule again. France might use the opportunity to assert control there, not just hand over Quebec to become part of the United States. While France was an American ally at the moment, everyone knew that was primarily the result of their joint opposition to Britain. France was a larger and more powerful country than Britain. It also had an absolute monarchy that was probably less disposed than Britain towards supporting the ideals of a republic. Washington had begun his military career opposing French claims in the Ohio Valley. Returning France to control of Quebec might once again stoke those claims and lead to some future war between the U.S. and France, one where the U.S. would not have Britain as an ally. Washington valued the alliance with France, but at the same time he also noted that, quote, it is a maxim founded upon the universal experience of mankind that no nation is to be trusted farther than it is bound by its interest. French and American interests would likely deviate if France began to build a new empire in America from its hold in Quebec. Despite the current alliance, Washington saw a longer-term benefit to a British-controlled Quebec than a French-controlled Quebec. Despite Washington's letter, Congress tentatively gave support in December to retaking Quebec. Washington found this of enough concern that he took the extreme step of leaving his army in New York and northern New Jersey to ride to Philadelphia and speak with members of Congress personally. Washington arrived on December 22nd and would remain in Philadelphia through January. We don't know exactly what Washington told the committee, but it was likely an elaboration both on his official military concerns as well as concerns about a French Quebec that he had expressed to Lawrence. During the course of the talks, Congress agreed that an invasion of Quebec was not feasible at the time and withdrew its proposal. And I may have a little more to say on that next week, because I think it is an important issue, but not one I have time to get in fully today. All of this was happening under the watchful eye of French Minister Girard, who had been in Philadelphia since the summer. Girard did not have access to secret congressional sessions, but he was following events closely. Girard's primary responsibility in America was to make sure that the U.S. did not reach some resolution with Britain that would leave France hanging in the war. He was still concerned by the fact that the Carlisle Commission was still in New York trying to bring about just such a resolution. Congress's decision not to cooperate in an invasion of Quebec only added to French fears. Girard began pressing for an expression of support for the French alliance and a guarantee that there was no consideration of a peaceful resolution and a return of British rule, even under highly advantageous terms to America. 
On January 14th, Congress complied, passing a resolution unanimously affirming that the U.S. would not enter into any peace with Britain without France's agreement. With no Quebec invasion on the agenda, Lafayette requested to return home to France. Even before Congress made the final decision not to take Quebec, Lafayette saw the writing on the wall. He also knew that with the war between France and Britain, he should probably go home and return to duty in the French army. By late October 1778, Lafayette traveled to Philadelphia to request an indefinite leave from the Continental Army. Congress granted the request and passed a resolution thanking the young general for his service. Lafayette departed Philadelphia for New England, planning to catch a ship from Boston to take home to France. On the way to New England, the general visited many prominent American leaders and enjoyed a great many stops as he made his way to Boston, in part to lobby important leaders for an eventual invasion of Quebec. By the time he reached New York, Lafayette fell ill and was bedridden for several weeks. He would not reach Boston until sometime in December and would not get a ship for France until early January 1779. I'm going to pick up Lafayette's story in Europe in a couple of weeks, but before I finish up this week, I want to note a few other important issues that Congress was dealing with. The biggest problem behind almost all of Congress's problems was money. It never had enough. Well, maybe it had too much. It was putting lots and lots of paper money that was becoming increasingly of less value. Congress found itself with ever-deepening financial commitments and seeing a more and more remote chance of ever being able to repay all of its debts. This was leading to very real problems. Representing one of America's largest creditors was French Minister Girard. He had on his agenda the issue of payment for all the aid that France had provided in the early years of the war. This was in part tied to the whole Silas Dean affair. The core of the complaint that Arthur Lee had made against Dean was that Lee claimed that France had provided covert assistance free of charge. Dean had reported that France had fronted those supplies, but very much wanted to be repaid for them at some point. Lee accused Dean of lying about the demand for payment and said that he was just trying to pocket all that money for himself. When Dean went public with his frustration in December, Payne had responded publicly with the accusation that the French aid was free. Payne's claims of free assistance very quickly got the attention of Minister Girard, who wanted to make clear that, yes, France actually did want to be paid. He began reaching out to members of Congress about getting paid for what many cash-strapped delegates still thought had been free assistance. I sometimes think the conversation went a little like this. Uh, well, like, when we first came in, uh, the bar lady never charged us for the first round, so, like, we figured, you know, beer was, like, complimentary for the band, you know? Oh, no, no, uh, uh-uh. Well, I'll just go out and take up a collection from the boys. Well, I tell you, I sure would appreciate it. Not surprisingly, Congress never really was able to find the money to pay back France. In fact, Congress was divided on the issue of whether they should or not. They did not want to cause a break in the alliance over a few boatloads of tobacco. On the other hand, the Lee faction did not want to admit that the accusations made against Dean were completely false and without merit. 
In the end, Congress passed a vague resolution disavowing Paine's articles and assuring France that America would comply with all agreements once they had all the details. At the same time, Congress was assuring France that it would pay for the early assistance. It was also asking France, along with anyone else in Europe, to lend them even more money toward the war effort. Up until this time, Congress managed to keep the economy afloat by printing millions of paper continental dollars. As I've said before, these were essentially promissory notes that permitted the bearer to receive a certain amount of gold or silver at some future point. The value of these dollars depended on people believing that, one, Congress would still exist in the future after having won the war, and two, that Congress would come up with some way to acquire enough gold and silver to pay off those notes. By the end of 1777, a congressional committee reported that it had put out $28 million worth of continental dollars into circulation over the course of three years. In fact, the committee was wrong. By that time, they had actually put out about $36 million into circulation. Congress had tried to make requests from the states to provide them with money, but the states were not very forthcoming. Congress skimped wherever it thought it could, for example, not paying the soldiers, and requiring the states to provide food, clothing, and other supplies for their soldiers in the Continental Army. Congress also seemed happy to stiff people where they could, such as refusing to pay debts incurred by folks such as, say, Silas Dean or Benedict Arnold, to name just two examples of probably hundreds of men who believed that Congress would never pay what it owed. The dollars that Congress had released in 1775 would start coming due for redemption in specie beginning in 1779. As that year had dawned, delegates still had no way of repaying those notes. Future emissions of currency had no fixed redemption rate at all. Even so, Congress knew that at some point it needed to find a way to make good on its financial promises. Congress directed its European agents to obtain loans to repay some of its commitments, but those loans, of course, just kicked the problem down the road as they would need to be repaid with interest. European creditors were also highly dubious that Congress would ever be able to pay off any loans and were reluctant to offer money at any terms. Instead, Congress had to double down on printing even more money. In 1778, it emitted another $68 million or so in notes, which almost tripled the amount of paper money out there. And in 1779, it would double that number again, emitting another $100 million. I'm going to get into the currency crisis of 1779 in a future episode, but the headline is that as more money was printed, the less value it retained. By the end of 1778, the continental dollar was worth about 12.5 cents, and by the end of 1779, it would fall to about 2.5 cents. Congress finally hoped to push off this whole debt problem onto the states. Delegates passed a law ordering the states to collect a certain amount of continental currency each year in order to protect the value of the money. The idea was that the states would accept continental dollars for the payment of taxes or other debts, then turn over that money for destruction and help keep the remaining dollars in circulation to maintain their value. Even if the plan worked, it would take an estimated 20 years to redeem all the currency, but at least they had a plan in place. And in an upcoming episode, we'll see how all that works. 
Next week, though, I want to take a closer look at George Washington's visit to Congress. This episode is supported by Factor. Let's face it, preparing good and healthy meals is a lot of work. As a result, I often end up eating just junk food. Factor offers a better solution. You can get pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, plus veggie, and more. It's going to be less expensive than takeout, and since it's pre-delivered, it's already home waiting for you when you get there. The meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed, and you can schedule the number of meals each week that works for you. Best of all, it tastes good and is good for you. As a special deal for listeners of the American Revolution podcast, you can go to factormeals.com ARP50 and use the code ARP50 to get 50% off. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first order. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to Alexander Hamilton Club supporters on Patreon, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Kurt Avard, author of the book, First Do No Harm. Thanks also to Joseph Burnett and John McInnes for one-time support via PayPal or Venmo. I really do appreciate it. Also this week, I want to wish a happy birthday to fan of the podcast, Rex Radloff. Rex, your girlfriend Madison, wishes you a happy one. So I've been solidifying my plans for a June 26th meetup in Philadelphia. Anyone who cares to show up can meet at 1.30 p.m. in Washington Square at the Tomb of the Unknown Revolutionary War Soldier. This is in Old Town, Philadelphia, and it's about a block from Independence Hall. If there is bad weather, we will meet in the lobby of the Curtis Center across the street, but I'm hoping for good weather. If interested, I'm also grabbing lunch before the meetup at the Bourse, which is on the other side of Independence Hall. It's an open area with multiple places to order food and a common seating area, much like a food court that you would find in any mall. So if anyone wants to grab lunch ahead of time, you can meet me at the Bourse around noon, then we'll head over to Washington Square around 1.30. The whole day is really just a casual event to get together and talk about the revolution. It's completely free, and there's really no set agenda. If people are up for it, and the weather permits, we may do a walk down Chestnut Street to talk about some of the historic buildings there. But as I said, mostly this is an excuse to meet up in person and to get a chance to talk. You can find more details on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. And please email me if you want to come. That way I can keep you up to date on any last minute changes. My email, which is also at the bottom of my website, is mtroy.history at gmail.com. Now, in addition to this June 26th meetup in Philadelphia, I'm also looking at the idea of doing an online live event on July 4th. I'll talk about the events that led to the Declaration of Independence, but more importantly, since it's a live event, you will be able to ask me questions about whatever you want. 
the revolution, the podcast, what my beagle's been up to lately, whatever. It should be a great chance to interact. I may be joined by a guest as well. I will probably be doing this on Podbean Live, since Podbean hosts my podcast. You can join via a web browser, but you'll probably have the best experience if you download the free Podbean app to your phone or tablet ahead of time. You can download the Podbean app at the App Store if you're a fan of Apple, or at the Play Store if you play on Team Google. Also, a reminder that History Camp America is taking place on July 10th. This is an online all-day event with multiple speakers on a wide range of history topics. Tickets are still available, and you can get a $5 discount by using the coupon code AMREV21. Go to historycamp.org for more details. This week, we looked in again on the Continental Congress and its ongoing problems as it begins 1779. Money has always been an issue for Congress, and it was pretty much running the war on promises of future reward, and those promises were beginning to wear pretty thin as the war approached its fifth year. Related to the money problems was the ongoing fight over Silas Dean and whether he was somehow improperly profiting from his efforts to form the French alliance and get French assistance shipped to America. This would be an ongoing fight that would last for years. Actually, the fight would outlive Dean and would continue on with his heirs. Henry Lawrence proved to be a casualty of the Dean controversy with his resignation as President of Congress. As I said in the main show, his replacement, John Jay, had only arrived in Congress a few weeks prior. Jay is not someone we've heard about much in the early years of the Revolution, but he would become much more prominent later. He will go on to negotiate the Treaty of Paris, write some of the Federalist Papers in support of the Constitution, and would serve as Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He also found time to negotiate what became known as the Jay Treaty during President Washington's administration. If you want to read more about Jay, my recommendation this week is a biography, John Jay, Founding Father, by Walter Starr. It's a solid look at the life of a founder who is largely overlooked. It was first published in 2005. The author, Walter Starr, is an attorney who found a passion for writing historical biographies later in life. My online recommendation this week is the resignation speech of the outgoing President Henry Lawrence. It's pretty short, less than five pages. I just think it's interesting to hear from the man himself as he tells Congress why he's leaving. I've included a link to the speech on archive.org, but it is available from many different sources. But as always, my direct link on my website is www.amrevpodcast.com. Now, before we get to the closing music this week, I'm trying out a new segment on the after show. Whether it becomes a regular feature, I guess depends on you. I'm going to start trying to answer questions that you, the listener, send to me. Now, this week, Mark Cannon asks if I've ever covered finance and money in the podcast, and he wants to know more about how financial transactions worked in the 18th century. I did cover the British monetary system a bit in episode 20 when we were discussing the Currency Act. Money at the time was specie, that is, precious metals, gold, silver, copper. To have real money was to have actual coins made with these actual rare metals. 
The British unit of currency, the pound, was literally a pound of silver at one time. In the colonial era, overseas transactions were particularly difficult since transferring gold and silver across the ocean was both expensive and dangerous. Typically, colonists would send their goods to England, for example, tobacco, and they would get a credit. Then, their merchants would send them finished items that they ordered, perhaps clothing or manufactured goods, and that would be deducted from their ledger. So, no money actually went back and forth. It was all done in writing. There were no banks in North America during the colonial era. If you had money, you usually kept it stored in a locked chest and hidden somewhere on your property, perhaps buried in your backyard. Actual specie was hard to get in America, so many people exchanged paper notes. These were basically IOUs paid to the bearer, which promised to pay gold or silver at some future time. Some of these were produced by colonial governments, others were simply written by wealthy merchants who had a good reputation in the region. These notes were commonly circulated in America, but they often ran into problems if there was doubt that the payer could actually redeem the notes for actual money. That is why continental dollars, which were a form of these notes, became so devalued during the war. People had very real doubts that Congress would ever make good on its promises to redeem the notes. Congress continued to have financial problems throughout the war. It was constantly scrambling to get hard money from anyone who had it. On a few occasions, they tried to knock over a British payroll or capture ships carrying pay. They tried to borrow from wealthy merchants, and they also hit up their ally, primarily France, for cash. Again, though, if France lent them money, it rarely traveled across the ocean it was spent in Europe to pay for military supplies, and then those supplies were transferred across the Atlantic. Spain was a big holder of cash in the Americas. Its mines in South and Central America provided lots of gold and silver. The Spanish dollar, made of silver, was a common unit in all of the Americas. It could be broken into eight pieces or bits, which is where we get the term pieces of eight, and it's also where we get the term two bits to refer to 25 cents. Again, because transferring gold and silver across the ocean was expensive and difficult, other countries like France would commonly borrow Spanish silver in the Americas, then repay it to Spain in Europe with other money that they had there already. That was how France came up with the money it needed to pay continental soldiers right before Yorktown. They borrowed it from Spanish officials in Cuba. Mark, I hope that answers your question. If anyone else has a question on anything related to the revolution, just send me an email and I'll do my best to answer it in the after show. You can email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com. And you can also find that email address on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another... American Revolution Podcast.